Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ore Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There's a particular kind of computer chip that's the darling of data center bosses, AI researchers, and investors. They're called GPUs. We look at a new offering from the firm AMD, which is aiming to split what's become more or less a GPU monopoly. And the unadorned violence of Ultimate Fighting Championship is shockingly popular. Now, from the same guy who popularised that, comes a new stripped-down sport called Power Slap, which is pretty much what it sounds like. But first... Indonesia, one of the world's largest democracies, appears to have elected a new leader. Saudara-saudara, begitu banyak yang 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 sangat kunci. Prabowo Subianto, a former general and Indonesia's current defense minister, went into his country's presidential elections as a favorite. Early results showed him capturing 60% of the vote. And on Wednesday, he claimed victory. Begitu banyak yang saya harus terima kasih, tapi saya kira jangan terlalu lama lah, ya. Cukup. Although we are grateful, we must not be arrogant, he said. This victory must be a victory for all Indonesian people. Mr. Prabowo has a contested and some say violent legacy. He's been accused of kidnapping pro-democracy activists and linked to atrocities in Indonesia's former territory of East Timor, all of which he denies. In this election, however, he successfully rebranded and won the backing of the outgoing president, Joko Widodo, known as Jokowi. That worries many analysts and Indonesians who have witnessed a crackdown on civil liberties during Jokowi's two terms. By mid-afternoon on Wednesday, it was pretty clear that Prabowo had won as reliable polls were showing that he had a majority of the vote, although the election commission won't make the result official until March 20. Su Lin Wong is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent. The mood in the country has since been pretty split. So Democrats have been very, very concerned. The hashtag RIP democracy, which means rest in peace democracy, has been trending on X in Indonesia. 
But Prabhu declared victory to thousands of cheering fans at a big sports stadium in Jakarta, and a huge roar of support erupted when he mentioned Jokowi, who is the current president of Indonesia. Prabhu reminisced about lunching with Suharto, his former father-in-law, who was also the dictator of Indonesia for 32 years until he was ousted in 1998. And what about his opposition? Have we heard from them? Prabowo ran against two rival candidates, Anis Baswedan and Ganjar Pranowo, and neither of them have yet conceded defeat. And what's really important to remember is that Prabowo actually ran against Jokowi in 2014 and again in 2019, and both times he lost and falsely accused the vote of being stolen. And in fact, in 2019, he incited his supporters to get out on the streets to protest and eight people were killed in those riots. In contrast to that, Anis Baswedan has already come out and said he pledges to respect the outcome of the election. Berikan kewenangan total kepada penyelenggara pemilu Ganjar Pranowo has come out and alleged voter fraud and said that some ballots have been tampered with. And there does seem to be evidence of that. What is important to remember is that last election, there was roughly 80% voter turnout. So that's around 160 million people voting. And so if Prabowo has won by 60%, there would need to have been tens of millions of votes tampered with in order for this to really change the final result. We've been keeping a close eye on this election on the show and we've discussed Mr. Pavero's controversial past as a military commander under the country's former dictator, Suharto. Sulin, how did he pull this off? So what's super important to remember about Prabowo's victory is that it's all about Jokowi. So despite previously being bitter rivals, Jokowi and Prabowo actually reconciled in 2019 when Jokowi appointed Prabowo as his defence minister. Jokowi is an incredibly popular president and decided to back Prabowo. Jokowi's son, Gibran, ran as Prabowo's vice presidential running mate. And that team has really been able to ride on the coattails of Jokowi. If Jokowi had backed another candidate, it's very, very likely that they would have won the election instead. So that's the first really important thing to understand. The other important thing to note is that Prabowo has very effectively rebranded himself as a cuddly grandpa who does silly dances on TikTok. And the third thing I would note is he did run an effective populist campaign. So yesterday I was out at various polling booths and I was really struck by young voters telling me that they had three or four younger brothers and sisters at home who were still in school. And Prabowo has pledged to give free milk and free lunch to all school children in Indonesia every day. His team told me that will cost around 83 million US dollars per day. But that has been a very popular policy among certain voters. And so that was also why some people voted for Prabowo. But surely not everyone can be happy with a Prabowo victory, right? Yes, exactly, Ore. So many prominent Indonesian academics, activists and journalists have come out and said that this is the most unfair, most undemocratic election since the fall of Indonesia's former dictator Suharto in 1998. And I spoke earlier today with Januwa Nugroho, who was an activist turned academic, turned deputy chief of staff 
to Jokowi. He worked for Jokowi for five years and left early in Jokowi's second term because he became very disillusioned with how Jokowi was running the country. And this is what he had to say about a Prabowo victory. I wouldn't say that this credit goes to Prabowo alone and his team because what I'm seeing is rather massive and, from my perspective, of course, massive and systematic uh, frauds and violations and interventions from the government under Pak Jokowi. There's been widespread reporting in Indonesian media about how rival campaigns, you know, a couple of hours before they were due to hold a rally, suddenly had their permits revoked, the electricity at a venue would be shut off, people who were outspoken critics of Jokowi and Prabowo have been intimidated. So this has been seen as a very, very dirty election. And actually over the weekend, a documentary made by three very well-respected legal academics was released on YouTube documenting all the different ways that this has been an incredibly unfair election. Now that Prabowo will be the country's next president, Sulin, what does it mean for Indonesia? It's very bad news for democratic progress in Indonesia, although that has been declining over the past few years under Jokowi. And Yanua spoke about how people are feeling right now in Indonesia. So we gathered again a few days ago before the election. We had this vigil uh, for democracy. Yanua told me he was particularly alarmed that someone who'd been dishonorably discharged from the army for his alleged involvement in human rights abuses, including the kidnapping of activists in the late 1990s, you know, how could someone like that become president? Now, of course, Prabowo denies any wrongdoing for the alleged human rights atrocities, but concerns about a Prabowo presidency aren't just limited to his human rights record. He's previously tried to abolish the direct elections of regional leaders and has said that Indonesia needs an authoritarian leader. At an event on February 10th, Mr Anis and Mr Ganjar both pledged to protect press freedom. Mr Prabowo was noticeably absent. And Human Rights Watch, an advocacy group, said that Prabowo was the only candidate who did not respond to a questionnaire about human rights issues that are important to voters. Now, what comes next for the country? We've spoken a lot about Indonesia's democratic decline on the intelligence because it's really important and concerning. But there are also serious questions about the quality of governance in Indonesia. And that's important too for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that Indonesia has a very worthy goal of trying to escape the middle income trap by 2045. And in order to do that, it needs growth of around 7%. It hasn't achieved that since before the Asian financial crisis in 1996. And if it wants to do that, it really needs very competent ministers, competent civil servants who aren't co-opted by big business. It needs, you know, genuine checks and balances within the bureaucracy. It needs a free press and a free civil society. Indonesia's you know, a big, important country. It's the world's fourth most populous country. It's made incredible progress since the fall of the dictator Suharto in 1998. And now the big question is, can it continue this progress under a Prabowo presidency? Sulin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ori. Ready? 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Late last year, chipmaker AMD unveiled its newest microprocessor. You can probably picture the launch, the Silicon Valley boss alone on a stage waxing lyrical about their great new innovation. It, it was all that, and maybe a little more. It kicked off with a slick video. Text exploded across the screen. This is the dawn of AI, it read. AMD's chief executive, Lisa Su, did indeed wax lyrical about the chip. I have to say, it's truly the most advanced product we've ever built, and it is the most advanced AI accelerator in the industry. And with a big old bag of those chips, AMD thinks it can take on the industry's 800-pound gorilla. In December, AMD unveiled a new chip that it called the MI300, which is a graphical processing unit that is used to power data centers. Shailesh Chitnis is a global business correspondent for The Economist. Now, essentially, these chips are used as the processing power for a lot of the large language models that are all the rage nowadays. AMD itself is a relatively new entrant into the space, which has basically been dominated by NVIDIA for the past few years. Now, we've talked a lot on this show about uh, the way chips are behind all kinds of things and, and AI in particular, but we haven't really got into the details. What is remarkable about this MI300 chip? So I used to design microchips very early in my career. What fascinated me about this field is that everyday engineers are trying to defy the laws of physics by packing in as many transistors as possible into smaller and smaller chips. Now, this specific chip by AMD has 153 billion transistors. And to get technical, it means it can process a lot of data very fast. The MI300 is a type of a chip called an accelerator. Accelerators are essentially processors that crunch massive amounts of data that are needed to train large language models, which are the basis of generative AI. Now, the tech specs that Ms. Sue rattled off about the MI300 make it faster and stronger than the equivalent product put out by chip giant NVIDIA. NVIDIA that has entirely dominated this GPU market for some years, right? Do you think with this chip, AMD can take it on? This new chip shows that AMD has the technical know-how, but capturing share from NVIDIA will be hard. The company today is a trillion-dollar firm. Its revenues and its margins are almost three times that of AMD. NVIDIA produces almost 86% of the world's AI accelerator chips, and it has a large ecosystem of developers and companies that are already familiar with its products. But the potential market for AI accelerators is large. AMD predicts that it's going to get to around $400 billion by 2027. And so with that large of a market, AMD is taking its shot anyway. Now, the day after it launched the chip, AMD share prices rose by 10% which shows that investors really liked what they saw. And this year, the company expects to sell almost $3.5 billion of these chips, up from zero last year. So that's a pretty good trajectory. 
Now, Jason, I have to point out one thing. The contest between AMD and NVIDIA is not just business. There's also a slightly personal angle to it. AMD CEO Lisa Su is distant cousins with Jensen Wang, the CEO of NVIDIA. Putting the family rivalry aside, again, we have spoken a lot in particular about NVIDIA on the show, but not so much about AMD. What's the backstory and what's your take on it sort of surging ahead now? So AMD is not a new entrant by any stretch of imagination. The company was established in 1970. And for the longest time, it was a distant second to Intel in the market for chips that are used to power personal computers and laptops. And Intel was always the bigger rival, and AMD had close to uh, maybe 10 to 15% market share in most markets in competing with Intel. But after 2006 or 2007, the company started to lose its way a little bit. So by the time Lisa Su took over in 2014, it had a few years of product failures where the chips that it had introduced didn't perform very well. The company was loaded with debt. Now, On her watch, the turnaround has been remarkable. AMD has displaced Intel as the second most valuable American chipmaker, something that was inconceivable for the longest time. Its market value is up 100-fold since she became CEO. And now with this new MI300 launch, she's actually gunning for the most valuable chip company out there, NVIDIA. So what exactly did she change, though? How did she spark this amazing turnaround? So the company, when she took over, was focused on the personal computer market, which wasn't growing very much. And Ms. Su realized that to get back into the game, AMD needed to focus on the more profitable market for data centers. These are the kind of chips that are used by hyperscalers like Amazon, Microsoft, and Google to power all their huge data operations, the computer operations. Besides focusing on the right market, she also realized that the company needed to produce better chips than Intel. Now, the company did not have as many resources. And so what AMD did was something quite clever. It adopted what it called a Lego-like approach, where it broke its chips down into smaller components. And then what they could do is they could simply mix and match them to make many more kinds of chips to sell to many different customers. The benefit was this approach also cost a lot less And you could come out with more kinds of products in lesser amount of time. Now, fast forward to today, this approach of modularizing their product has paid dividends because the MI300 uses the same philosophy to vertically stack many different kinds of chips under one roof to be able to pack in the 153 billion transistors. AMD is today spending almost $6 billion a year on R&D, which is almost close to how much NVIDIA spends. And its investments are working. Based on the MI300's performance, OpenAI, which is the maker of ChatGPT, said that it would buy those chips to train its large language models, which is a pretty good endorsement in my view. Now, to come out of the detail a bit, these chips will end up training large language models, will end up in data centers, what have you. What's it mean for the, the person on the street, for you and I? I think the real upshot here is how these chips will power all the different AI applications that are going to start coming online. It's only been slightly more than a year since ChatGPT was launched in November of 2022. Now, at the product launch for MI300, Lisa Su said that what happened over the course of last year is just a sign for the future. When we think about it, we actually view AI as the single most transformational technology over the last 50 years. Maybe the only thing that has been close has been the introduction of the internet, 
But what's different about AI is that the adoption rate is just much, much faster. So AMD elbowing into the AI chip space is good because it creates competition. For the past few years, there was literally no alternative for a lot of these model makers like OpenAI or Anthropic when they needed high-performance chips. All they had was NVIDIA. And essentially, NVIDIA could jack up the prices. There's also a supply shortage. And so what that means is, for the market, now you have more competition. You actually have a viable product that is on par in performance and probably going to be lower on price as well. So to your point, what it means for you and me is eventually the price of a lot of these processing is going to come down. And as AI starts proliferating everywhere else, it's going to be good for the consumer. Shailesh, thanks you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, this match is five rounds. All for the Power Slap Middleweight Championship. And presented by... This combat sport has all the pageantry you'd expect from a boxing match or mixed martial arts. But the style of fighting is raising a lot of eyebrows. This is where he slaps best after getting slapped. No. Oh. He wants enough. Fair blow. Oh, fair fair blow. Blow. Okay. You might ask yourself how many people really want to watch two people slap the crap out of each other. Well, this is the internet, and the answer is a lot of people, like a lot of people. This fringe sport is quickly becoming a lot less fringe. Slap fighting is where two people stand across each other and slap each other into the head until uh, they no longer can slap each other. Anthony Noonan is a researcher for The Economist. Dana White, the chairman of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the UFC, has seen this inherent virality that knocking people out instantly brings and has put a lot of money behind it, leading to the creation of America's first official slap fighting league, which is what a power slap is. Now, I have, honestly, I have not seen this yet. I kind of hope that I don't actually. But there's got to be more to it than that. How does it actually work? What are the rules, the, the bounds? So two competitors stand across each other and they have 60 seconds to slap each other. Like all at the same time, like Three Stooges style no, or like one be, and then another? Be, it's one then the other. So you have one competitor, they'll have 60 seconds to slap. Uh, the slap must be below the eye and above the chin. They have 60 seconds to line the hand up with the face. The opposing athlete, if you want to call them, is unable to flinch. They're unable to tuck their chin. They're unable to raise their shoulder. They're basically not allowed to defend in any way, shape, or form. They just have to receive the full force of the slap. And then they have 60 seconds to uh, respond in turn. There are three rounds. And if no one has been knocked out, they will go to a judge's decision. But most of the time, they get knocked out. That's correct. I mean, the figures that we have are 26 of 55 bouts so far have ended with a knockout. So the numbers are pretty high. And now this is set to get bigger because there's going to be a league. Someone who's behind UFC is chucking money at it. That's correct. In, in, in the view that it is, this is, for, this is now for prime time. It seems that way. Dana White... He's a very shrewd and canny businessman. He's always had a really good eye for being able to see what works with audiences and what can pick up really quickly. He started Power Slap with the launching of a 
reality TV show called Power Slap Road to the title, basically to build off of the success that a previous reality TV show did. So um, in 2005, the UFC was basically on its last legs regarding money. It had lost incredible amounts due to fighting legal cases. It launched a reality TV show, The Ultimate Fighter, to keep the franchise going. The show became incredibly successful and it basically saved the franchise. And Dana White has basically created this reality show to promote power slap in the same way that the ultimate fighter did for the ufc but in the first season the numbers the ratings continued to decline from the first episode downwards leading to the broadcaster tbs to cancel the show in the end but he put money behind this franchise to make a second series it wasn't broadcast on cable it was broadcast on rumble but dana white still thinks this is going to be a thing he's still backing it still chucking money at it Dana White truly believes in this due to what he calls uh, inherent virality. This TikTok page has about 4.2 million followers with good number of videos reaching over the a million views mark, a lot more reaching over 100,000 views. The fact of the matter is these videos can be under, under 20 seconds and it just shows someone being knocked out by a single slap. Throwing a bit of slick editing and... Uh, it's easy clicks. There's a lot of talk these days about sports where getting knocked out or getting a good knock to the head turns out to be a very bad thing in, later in life. How, how does this fit with the growing awareness that knocking heads around is bad news? It's very interesting looking at Power Slap because that has been one of the primary critiques from pathologists, from fans, even from fighters in the UFC and, and in boxing. The fact that it is completely unbridled attack is the issue behind power slap. Obviously, there's been a strong build in awareness for brain injury in combat sports. I mean, however many years ago, you would never have heard of the term CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a neurodegenerative disease which stems from repeated head trauma. For many years, you would never have heard of that, whereas now it is a common term used when people discuss combat sports. One of the leading pathologists, Dr. Bennett Amalu, has called it inconsistent with the intelligence of humans. The fact of the matter is you were just standing there and receiving ridiculous amounts of power straight to the brainstem. It, it, it's, it's crazy. Clicks go wild. There's money to be made. Dana has no qualms about this. It's a thing. Is that the upshot? I would say so. Oh. I would say so. Oh, the pinnacle of our culture. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of criticism that has said, oh, maybe this is all down to a sort of bloodthirsty element to humanity that has emerged. But the reality is that's what brings in eyeballs. That's what is causing clicks. That's what's leading to views. That's what's putting money in the pocket of Dana White. And if that's there, and if the eyeballs are still there, and if people continue to view it, then money will continue to go into it. Anthony, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. How are you enjoying our new subscription, Economist Podcast Plus? What? What do you mean you haven't subscribed yet? What are you waiting for? We even have a half-price offer on our annual and two-year plans for the whole of February. 
For The Specialist, that gives you access to our weekly shows on China, American politics, business, and more. And for those of you who are after something longer, you'd love our narrative weekend edition of The Intelligence. So go on, follow the link in our show notes, or search Economist Podcast Plus online to join the party. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.